0: oppression, so that we may one day dismantle the I'm Jabran Abdelhai. Hi, I'm
1: Maha Yous. I'm Claire Epstein.
2: And I'm Samai
0: Ipek. In the last year, we've seen a reckoning on policing and systems of oppression, and a reconsideration of the mass incarceration system. We've also seen a lot of attention paid to systems of immigration and deportation. We've seen movements of opposition rise against both systems of oppression. But what's often lost is just how intrinsically the ideas of mass incarceration and deportation are rooted in ideas of oppression. And what's missed even more is just how much the two are related. In this podcast, we hope to shed some light on that.
3: So I guess it's important to provide some definitions before we dive into our discussion. We're basically going to look at the parallels between the mass incarceration system and the mass deportation system. And to define mass incarceration, we can think of it as the modern system of exponentially increasing the incarceration of people. Specifically, we're gonna be focusing on the United States of America. And this started in the late 20th century as Neoliberal and neoconservative politicians criminalized many nonviolent offenses, ended social welfare programs that reduced crime, and built prison after prison, and increasing the amount of imprisoned people over tenfold since. And it's also important to mention that this system deliberately targets black and brown communities, as evidenced both by statistics, subtle racist tropes of tough-on-crime politicians and blatant admissions of their intentions. So we can also say that the United States is currently imprisoning more people than any other body in the history of humankind.
0: And also, I'd like to note that the 13th Amendment, which is... Famous for abolishing slavery specifically makes an exception for prisoners and prisoners are made often to work for little or no wages and they lose many rights that they were formally granted this system has been characterized as the new jim crow by michelle alexander and it really can be viewed as a system that's tangentially close to slavery
2: and in this podcast we're going to continue to draw parallels between the mass incarceration and mass deportation system Mass deportation refers to the sprawling network of institutions that in the turn of the millennium have dramatically increased militarized enforcement of immigration laws. And this encompasses everything from militarized border security to ICE raids to the legal framework of immigration. All of this results in massive numbers of undocumented immigrants being deported to their migrated country regardless of the reason for fleeing uh, their ties to the land and its society and their ties in the U.S.
1: Parallels between the incarceration system and deportation system can be seen in all faucets particularly one striking parallel that was brought up was how it's almost a sense of escape as Davis writes that prisons essentially relieve us of the responsibility of seriously engaging with the problems of our society, especially those produced by racism and increasingly also global capitalism. The same can also be applied for the mass deportation system in which the idea that locking away a large portion of the U.S. population is somehow going to help the world feel safer in either these ICE detention centers versus the mass incarceration system.
0: If we want to talk about the theory of the prison and deportation as an institution. We can't not talk about the panopticon, and the panopticon refers to one of the first ideological implementations of the prison, where essentially the prison was built in like a cylinder type shape, and there would be a guard tower in the center of the prison there would be a guard station at the top and it would be covered with like a two-way mirror so that the person inside the guard tower could see everything that's going on in the prison at all times but the prisoners could not ever know if they were being watched or not this is a really radical idea of surveillance and it goes against what we usually think of. When we think of ideas of surveillance, we usually think of like 1984 Orwell type surveillance, where it's very obvious that you're being watched and the person or powers that are watching you obviously announce that you're being watched and you pretty much know exactly when you're being watched. But I think the Panopticon is a really more like devious version of that because you don't know if you're being watched at any specific time. You just know that you could be watched at any given time. You don't know who's watching you. For what reason? And because of that, you don't actually ever have to be watched, it's just that the hypothetical idea of you being watched is enough to make you change your actions and stuff. Michel Foucault in his book Discipline and Punish states, The panopticon is a machine for dissociating the seen and being seen dyad. In the perfect ring, which is the prison aspect of it, uh, one is totally seen without ever seeing. In the central tower, one sees everything without ever being seen.
3: I just wanted to also add on to that and say that this mechanism um, and the idea of the panopticon kind of automizes and disindividualizes the power. So the power has this principle not so much in a person or a guard, but it's basically a gaze. It does not matter who exercises the power and it does not matter what motive animates him, as Foucault uh, states. It's just the idea of being visible to some sort of a power just plays the actual role. And in thinking of a
2: faceless surveillance state, I think of Foucault emphasizing the principle of like central inspection and the impetus to like change behavior or the goal I guess of the panopticon as as a structure is for the inmate to like police themselves for fear of punishment and that brings in the very corporeal like aspects of not only mental toll that prisons and being locked up can bring but also a sense of like very physical fear and with that I also think of the surveillance state in general and how like the Panopticon is not just like a physical prison, it can also be seen in the surveillance state we have today.
1: I was just gonna add, looking at the surveillance aspect a little bit more i also wanted to connect how the surveillance itself is unequal as we've seen we've seen that as davis brings up so much of who is being surveilled is based on racism it's a focus on black and brown communities that we also highlighted at the beginning so just how even surveillance itself is known to target people
0: Yeah, absolutely. And continuing on the topic of the panopticon and surveillance, the history of criminal punishment went from a history of isolated events of really, really like imaginative violence that was kind of like over the top, and this was the system of punishment. We tend to think of the prison as just something that was always there. Like, what do we do with criminals? We send them to prison. And it seems like This is just the way things have always been. But actually, the prison is a relatively new idea and it only showed up in the 18th and 19th century where the idea of punishment went from punishing the body with torture and violence to really reaching into the soul of the condemned and really trying to punish the soul and modify the soul into what the state wanted it to be. This is Accomplished with the power of surveillance in the panopticon. And Foucault notes that the panopticon induces in the inmate a state of consciousness and permanent visibility that assures the automatic functioning of power. And this is basically analogous to what we said before that the prisoner, this is just the prisoner as an idea. This is not even considering specific crimes that the state chooses to define. The prisoner is always being watched and they always fear being watched. So they become their own police psychologically and it really modifies the soul and goes against the way human beings are supposed to function this basically continues automatically just because like we said before it doesn't matter who's watching them or if they're even watching them
3: and just to examine like the reason why the idea of a prison became more central to the idea of punishment i guess we can talk about how with the enlightenment maybe before that as well like how the idea of freedom and liberty became more crucial and a part of what basically makes a civilized human being. I think that played a huge part. As we gave more and more focus on liberty, deprivation of it became a way of punishing people. So I guess now one of the reasons why we think that this is a very like self-evident character of the prison and the reason why we cannot imagine the world maybe without the prison system as the primary form of punishment is the value we put on liberty.
2: Just to, to speak to the reliance of our society on punitive measures for social order, Michel Foucault also says in his book The panoptic arrangement provides the formula for this generalization. It programs at the level of an elementary and easily transferable mechanism the basic functioning of a society penetrated through and through with disciplinary mechanisms. And I think this also speaks to the issue of mass incarceration and how panoptic structures exacerbate and also most literally reflect how unnatural prisons are.
0: I think it's important to point out that the panopticon is not just a building. Foucault specifically points this out, that the panopticon must not be understood as a dream building. It is the diagram of a mechanism of power reduced to its ideal form. Its functioning abstracted from any obstacle, resistance, or friction must be represented as a pure architectural and optical system. It is, in fact, a figure of political technology that may and must be detached from any specific use. And I think this is important that we need to keep in mind that the panopticon is not just the building that Robert Bentham envisioned in his work. It's really an idea and it's really a framework for relationships of power and hierarchies. Power in our society decides how we interact with people in our personal lives, but also with relations to authority figures, when you really look at the big picture, it kind of decides how we interact with people, where we exist in time and space, where we are, because the prison is exactly the confinement of someone and their time and space. They're confined to a physical location for a set amount of time.
1: And just to go off that, I would say that the panopticon is definitely more than what we think it is, but primarily it's also a mindset, as we brought up earlier. How it's almost the way that we police ourselves according to this perceived idea that is given through authority. And it's also a way that we perceive and surveillance our own neighbors because we have these preconceived notions of this proposed authoritative order that we're supposed to be listened to. And any sort of deviation from that order is noticed by those in the Panopticon because the Panopticon is so central to our society. And even though it may have started at this smaller level or in this confined idea of what architecturally a panopticon means it definitely has grown and that's something that Foucault brings up with multiple technologies is that something that's used at a global space eventually will reach the local population and i think the same applies for the panopticon
0: yeah off the top of my head actually i'm thinking of those neighborhood watch apps where basically people just report to the app what's going on in the neighborhood if anything's suspicious quote-unquote Essentially, it's a mechanism for people to become their own police. Unsurprisingly, this sense of watching is weaponized against black and brown people in that disproportionately they're reported on these apps for quote unquote, suspicious behavior. And really it's just them being punished for existing. And at this point, I think it is impossible to go on without mentioning the racial dynamics of systems like this. I'd like to bring up this concept known as the racial contract This idea is attributed to Charles W. Mills. We said earlier that the prison had to have rights to take away. In the Enlightenment, these ideas of liberty and self-determination were really enshrined in documents like, you know, the Declaration of Independence. And basically, we gave rights to people to take away. But if you look at history, it becomes really obvious that the ideas that were said in this time, like in the Declaration of Independence, says all men are created equal but like there's an inherent contradiction in what the ideas of the time were and the actuality of how this was carried out. This has to be explained somehow. In order for a model to really be accurate, it has to really explain everything that's going on. So what Charles Mills proposes is, there's the social contract, which is essentially the rules and ideas that we agree upon as a society. And most of the time, these contracts proclaim values of equality and freedom and liberty, independence, and we have to really examine why is it that the practice of these ideas have led to the oppression of black and brown people at the same time that these ideas are being preached. The way Charles Mills proposes that this can be resolved is that there exists a second contract that's called the racial contract, and it is a contract that exists underneath the social contract. It's an unspoken idea that establishes a dichotomy between white and non white peoples. This is essentially a personhood slash subpersonhood dyad. It establishes a hierarchy in which white people will always retain hegemony over all aspects of society and culture and oppress non-white people. There's basically a hierarchy of people, which is like the hierarchy of different ethnic groups of white people, which would serve to explain why it's a fact throughout history, certain groups of white people have oppressed other groups of white people, Italians in the United States, Jewish people in the Holocaust, But it's different because they exist within the part of the hierarchy that is allocated to white people. Because at the end of the day, if you're white, regardless of your ethnicity or religion, you will always blend in. Non-white people do not have that advantage, so they exist within a separate part of the hierarchy. Which is why oppression between the two hierarchies will always be different than oppression within any one part of it. And this also serves to explain why non-white peoples have also oppressed other groups of non-white peoples. And in the United States, sometimes there's violence between different races that are non-white. But this exists within the same part of the hierarchy. So it cannot be said that it's the same as white on non-white oppression. I think the really important part to get that charles mills points out is that in the older days it was blatant institutions like slavery segregation were very obvious and racism was just said out loud but in the modern day it is deliberately made subtle in order to preserve it because after there was a lot of hard work done to try to overthrow these systems of oppression the powers that be in this white supremacist white hegemonic system realized that in order for this system to survive it can't be obvious anymore it has to be subtle in order for it to keep going. It explains how this contradiction can exist that all men are created equal. At the same time, we still have systemic racism and institutions that serve to, to this day, clearly just oppress black and brown people. This is basically the bedrock on which everything else in society is built, The racial contract serves as a justification for white people in the West in a societal sense to mentally justify why they were carrying out atrocities against black and brown indigenous peoples, but still at the end of the day be able to sleep at night. If you're committing these atrocities against quote unquote, savage peoples or uncivilized populations, then it becomes a lot easier to do it. And this is basically why it systemically emerged to reconcile the cognitive dissonance of committing human atrocities, but still wanting to view yourself as the moral standard of the world. This system of thinking still exists there's are still mission trips that go to African countries to quote unquote, go to uncivilized populations and civilize them by basically giving them resources on condition that they convert to Christianity, for example, or extracting resources from Africa in exchange for aid. It's important to realize that this racial contract is not just something that existed in the past. Racism is not just a story that ended with the civil rights movement. It is a mechanism that is in the very idea of society and it still exists to this day It is fundamental. It really can't be ignored once you learn about it. But it's difficult to learn about it because it's deliberately hidden.
2: Exactly. And race and class, trying to incorporate both of those understandings within the power structures we're referring to under the umbrella of policing. And to offer a basic definition, policing at its most basic can be defined as drawing social boundaries and norms and enforcing them or punishing transgressions or straying from the status quo. And this can mean anything from what we talked about earlier, apps today that you can report your neighbors, you can surveil your neighbors with, and then policing as we know it, on a very individualistic level, a man in a blue uniform. And since policing itself is characterized by power dynamics and control, The very nature of law enforcement involves them too, and they cannot be separated from their role as defenders of the status quo and its stakeholders. In in my understanding of how race and class are both essential in understanding everything we're kind of talking about, I guess, I'm gonna refer to a quote from Ruth Wilson Gilmore that speaks to both the mass incarceration and mass deportation system in an international context. So globalization and the U.S. prison growth from military Keynesianism to post Keynesian militarism, the media, government officials and policy advisors endlessly refer to the moral panic over crime and connect prison growth to public desire for social order. And this is relying on painting black and brown people as evil in the media by policymakers and politicians. Think trump and his border wall and calling people from mexico criminals and rapists there needs to be this this fear that fuels both the profit and the profit-driven and white supremacist values of the hierarchical policing structures
3: I completely agree with what Claire said, and I wanna point out in a very like parallel ground that mass incarceration and also mass deportation in the United States is directly tied to globalization and thus neoliberal economic reforms. As the federal government began to cut funding for social programs and welfare, it also opened the doors for its prisons. When we talk about Reaganomics as well, before Trump, in the 1980s under President Reagan, the heavy cuts to a wide variety of social programs, and basically the welfare system being shrunk, the prison system grew. It is, again, my understanding, it is safe to say that due to these social welfare cutbacks, the problems were externalized. And with putting people into prison more and more each day, the lawmakers and authorities made themselves look as if they are tough on crime and they're like fighting for the safety of their citizens. But in reality, this was not the case. And this ties to the social contract and the racial contract that Gibran mentioned to a great extent, in my opinion.
0: Speaking of neoliberalism, the ideas that were started with Reaganomics and the first wave of neoconservatism were really wrapped into neoliberal ideas too and centrist democrats ideas of policymaking as well. We can't ignore that in the 90s, politicians like Bill Clinton and even Joe Biden really passed these laws that greatly expanded the mass incarceration system and relied on these tropes of tough on crime and continue to cut social programs. So essentially, the dynamic at play here is the federal government, by cutting these programs, basically creates new criminals, creates circumstances that are conducive to crime. Then they expand the prison system, imprison the these people who are more likely now to commit crime because of the extenuating circumstances and then they pat themselves on the back and say oh look at this problem that we solved and everyone agrees so the system goes on. This is one of the mechanisms that the system basically perpetuates itself. It has to be said that this is also very closely tied to the tenets of capitalism and in its modern iteration this new hyper-capitalist implementation of it in that one of the ideas of capitalism is that there always has to be more it's not enough to succeed again you have to succeed by more than last time and it has to go on and on and on with no end and the system kind of eats itself in a way so when you've ran out of ways to extract labor and profit you have to come up with really ingenious ways ingenious in their like evil of getting labor and stuff and one of the ways this is accomplished is through the prison the prison is a very important source of labor for the ruling elite because as i said earlier with the 13th amendment there's an exception for slavery for prisoners and because of that you have a cheap or even free source of labor indeed throughout the world prisoners are responsible for creating a lot of the cheap goods that we have and an example that comes to mind is during the california wildfires last year a lot of the firefighters who were sent in were prisoners who weren't paid or were paid very little, way below minimum wage. This is exactly what I'm talking about when I said earlier that this is basically a system of new slavery. And the privatization aspect of neoliberalism that Samai mentioned earlier is also for the purposes of capitalism. Because if you cut social programs, you could use that money to invest in companies and stuff. So you're basically taking the money that was formerly securing the well-being of the people and you're basically giving that for free to the rich. I think it's important to remember that all of us exists within capitalism because that's simply the society that we live in.
1: I just wanted to highlight that because of these neoliberal systems and basically the economic ties that we've discussed that's what makes it really so difficult to think of alternative systems as well so as we're looking at things through this lens i think one big thing to look at is why don't we have alternatives to the mass deportation system and a really striking example is there was a lot of fear post 9 11 that led to this heightened xenophobia it led to this heightened nature and usage of the panopticon it's feeding into this neoliberal system and there's just so much economic ability to put money into the mass deportation systems and the international corporate nature that focus on all the immigration labor all the laws surrounding immigration that has been boosted as you were saying by the government itself so that also ties into what makes it so hard to look at alternative systems to both the mass deportation system and the mass incarceration system
2: thinking of neoliberalism and how in my opinion it is more insidious than like neoconservatism both being fueled by industries that profit off of destruction of both land and people i think of to how communities of color bear the brunt of all of this because their lives and their labor are seen as disposable. And that's a point that Tanya golash boza argues that the mass deportation of like specifically men of color is part of the neoliberal cycle of global capitalism. So mass deportation as like a US policy is designed to relocate surplus labor to peripheral countries to keep labor compliant and peripheral in this context meaning uh, what other people would call like developing nations or underdeveloped nations, comparable to the United States, which would be like the core nation, which relies on the exploitation of labor and people of color. And continuing with the ideas that immigrant men of color are like perceived to be expendable ties in directly with who's filling up all of these prisons. It's largely men of color for crimes that don't make sense for someone to be locked up for, like drug offenses and the the goals that Reagan set out in the 80s to fully unleash the wrath of capitalism onto people of color.
0: Yeah. And speaking of this cycle that Claire mentioned, essentially, there's a repeating story that goes on with this neoliberal cycle. And it's basically in the Cold War, we essentially kind of destroyed the economies of third world countries as they tried to solidify an opposition to the West. There was this effort for all of the developing nations to unite against the imperialism of the West and essentially these non-governmental institutions like the International Monetary Fund and stuff basically went in and essentially destroyed these economies. We also, with our imperialism went in and with the CIA, overthrew governments, and we basically restructured the governments and the economies of developing nations so that people felt a need, and people do need often to flee to first world nations in order to seek means of surviving. By creating this need to migrate to the United States, we basically create a easy to manipulate force of labor. And because they're under constant threat of being deported, we can, as the West, exploit them if you know a boss of a corporation exploits undocumented immigrants they're not going to report it to anyone because if they do they'll be deported so what they've essentially done is create a source of labor that's really even easier for them to exploit and by hanging this sword over their heads with deportation in a panoptic way that they could always be deported they don't know when they don't know exactly by who but it's always there these populations are forced to be compliant. And what Clear was really getting at by exploiting their labor back to their home countries is there's a lot of these US corporations that now because of globalization operate in developing nations. They'll often hire people who were deported from the United States for jobs that require English speaking like call centers and they'll pay them basically starvation wages. You've not only created a force of labor in the United States that's easily manipulated, you've also created a force of labor in developing nations that you can exploit again after you've already exploited them. So I just want to highlight just the kind of insidiousness of the whole mass deportation complex. It's really deliberately engineered and it's often missed. It's just commonly just thought of as like, oh, people came here illegally, so we send them back. It's really more complicated than that. And it's a system fundamentally designed around the idea of exploitation.
3: And I wanted to just add, we talked about this in our recitation with Eleanor as well, this concept of agency when it comes to both black and brown population and also the immigrant population in the United States and how the system of immigration and deportation feeds into the carceral system. I just wanted to mention that as Gibran stated, immigrants come into the U.S. with hopes of better futures for both themselves and their families. However, they are subjected to low income, low wage jobs. And basically, these neighborhoods form where a lot of immigrants live together in the same neighborhood. And these are basically racially segregated as well, with poor schools, few resources, and plenty of opportunities to get into trouble. Because as we have mentioned before, and as Tanya Golash Bazersberg mentions, since the jobs that immigrants can work at like these are very low paying jobs uh, people usually have to find other ways to earn money which turns into sometimes like the drug trade and this together with heavy policing in their neighborhoods um, causing them to be incarcerated in much higher rates than u.s citizens and also the white
1: population.
0: The idea of agency is really scary when you really think about it because it's really these migrant populations really looking like and feeling like they're in control. Like they're making their own decision to migrate to the United States and their own decisions once they get there. But really, their fate is kind of already decided for them. Like this system is kind of steering them towards a predetermined fate. And it's this idea of the illusion of agency that you think you have free will, but the system has already basically wrote your story for you. I just think that's a really important thing to think about. And with that, I think we'll take a brief intermission and we'll be back shortly. And we're back. And now we're going to talk about the global context of these systems.
1: So drawing from our discussion, we can see that Foucault's shift to this new idea of discipline and the nature of crimes, along with this rise of the panopticon, as you were talking about, both as an establishment and mindset, also propels a global system of policing. And A big part of this is the techniques of surveillance that started in these contained levels eventually became full-fledged ideas in this massive counterinsurgency effort. So we see that global and local policing uses similar mechanisms of control, but the sheer scale of global policing and its incorporation into everyday life is both frightening and shocking. The historical implications were particularly striking to me as we saw in a reading by clearly such as that the fingerprinting method of policing originally started in colonial india under the british empire and then became such a system like a big method of policing and so common but also exists in a massive framework level so it propels this idea that all technology no matter how small can have a profound impact on a global web of policing. And even more so in the reading we did by Graham and Baker, we saw that large-scale policing such as housing demolition projects in Palestine by Israeli forces also have this intent to rebuild so that the new nation can be policed better by these counterinsurgency efforts. and. As the web of global policing is so entwined into existing structures, it also capitalizes off of the neoliberal economy and creates this massive cycle in which really the only solution is abolition. We turn to discuss the different methods of abolition and why abolition itself is so difficult to achieve.
0: These ideas of the prison and deportation systems, they just sort of seem natural. They sort of seem self-evident. It's like to the average person when you ask the question what do we do with criminals we send them to prison what do we do with people who have entered the country illegally we deport them and it seems natural it seems like we've always done that but as we've pointed out both of these institutions are fairly new and have not always existed the prison has only existed for about 150 to 200 years and the mass deportation complex is even newer If I were to ask you, when institutions like ICE and DHS started, you'd probably say 50 years, 100? But really, both of these institutions started in 2003, but it seems like it's always been this way. So how is it that these institutions are able to just appear and then collectively just insert themselves into our memory and have the illusion that they've always existed? And I'd like to point out a quote by Foucault, who I think really put it insightfully. One can understand the self evident character that the prison punishment very soon assumed. It seemed to have no alternative. We are all aware of the inconveniences of the prison and that it is dangerous when it is not useless, and yet one cannot see how to replace it. It is the detestable solution. One seems unable to do without. He finally goes on to say that the prison is natural, just as. The use of time to measure exchanges is natural in our society. And what he's basically saying is that the idea of the prison, and by extension the mass deportation complex, were engineered so that they were built on these premises that seem self-evident. When you construct these institutions in opposition to ideas that just seem self-evident themselves, then the institutions also become self-evident. When you build these institutions in opposition to ideas like liberty and freedom ideas that became cemented after the Enlightenment, then naturally these institutions are going to seem natural long after they're established.
3: I also, I agree with everything Gibran and Maha said, and I wanted to talk about maybe drawing a connection between the social contracts that we've talked about and capitalism and neoliberal cycle and how these three concepts relate to each other and makes the mass incarceration and mass deportation systems may be very self-evident and unavoidable. So in social contract, we talked about how given the opportunity, everyone can work really hard and make sure that they are successful. And tying this to capitalism and neoliberal society, and the United States is the perfect example for this, the state takes limited responsibility for the well-being of its citizens and the state expects each individual to be entrepreneurial and independent. And it basically celebrates people who succeed in this environment. Like it doesn't necessarily provide any help. And there is a quote, the Tanya Golish's book, Entrepreneurs Continue to the State to espouse this idea that if anyone could work hard they can overcome racism and this works to blame minorities or immigrants for failure to succeed in this land of opportunity. So I guess the capitalist and neoliberal ideals of how an entrepreneur should create these opportunities for him or herself, putting this blame on individuals and not the state itself or the lack of social welfare or basically anything provided by the government, I think it makes the whole cycle very self-evident. At least it makes it seem like it or tries to make it seem like it and makes us believe that the whole system is just unavoidable because it focuses the blame in an individual rather than the state itself
0: I definitely agree with that and I'd like to point out that this exists within a system that's designed to produce these outcomes. Just the very fact that these stories exist of, you know, a minority or immigrant beating the odds, quote-unquote, points out to the fact that they overcame a system that was designed with these obstacles in mind to their success. And we don't think about that. We think about how they overcame the odds, but we don't think about the odds themselves that these structural barriers to success exist in the first place. And another aspect of this system that needs to be pointed out is that the ideas of the prison and mass deportation complex doesn't actually reduce crime. It's been proven throughout 20th century and 21st century social history. And the mass deportation complex also doesn't reduce illegal immigration. But because these institutions fail, to deal with the solutions they're supposedly designed to deal with. We propose these institutions as the solution to their own failures. Like, for example, to trace this line of logic, it's like, oh, the prison hasn't reduced crime, crime is still up. What do we need to do? We need to build more prisons. So the institution becomes the means of solving the problems of the institution itself. And because of that, it just kind of feeds on itself and it's just a self-perpetuating cycle that these institutions grow because of their failure. And it's important to realize that and like be able to stop the cycle and realize that these institutions aren't serving us, but they're also responsible for oppression on a mass scale.
2: Angela Davis speaks on this phenomenon really well and saying that The process through which imprisonment developed in the primary mode of state-inflicted punishment was very much related to the rise of capitalism and to the appearance of a new set of ideological conditions. These new conditions reflected the rise of the bourgeoisie as the social class whose interests and aspirations furthered new scientific, philosophical, cultural, and popular ideas. And all of these ideas, now these are my own words, all of these ideas uh, proliferated globally um, during the neoliberalization of America, therefore um, all of the peripheral nations that are affected by our economy, often in really terrible ways.
0: So I guess the question becomes, what do we do about all this as individuals, as groups and communities and as a society. And when you think about the fact that these institutions and the ideas behind them themselves are problematic, it becomes clear that reform is not enough and you can't fix a system that's not broken. It's often said that the system is broken, but these systems are performing exactly the way they're designed. They're designed to be and seem broken and reform is often pointed out as the answer. But Foucault points out that reform belongs to the prison. It belongs to institutions like policing and the mass deportation complex. When these institutions were first instituted, people were debating the reform of these institutions at the very beginning, like in the 1700s and 1800s, when they were debating over which form of the prison was best and should be implemented. It was between the Auburn model and the Philadelphia model. Included in that discussion was How will these institutions, how will these prisons reform over time? And it was much the same rhetoric when we instituted the mass deportation complex in that reform was there from the very beginning. The fact that reform really ideologically belongs to these institutions kind of points to the fact that reform can never really fix these institutions and it's really just doing the work of the prison and doing the work of the mass deportation complex when we limit ourselves to just thinking about reform. The true solution is to take these resources of these systems and redistribute them in restructuring society so that we don't need these institutions and gradually wean ourselves off the dependency on these institutions until we're ready to completely abolish them. It seems like impossible to imagine a world without the prison, a world without the mass deportation complex. But... This is deliberate. I'll point to Angela Davis's argument that back when the institution of slavery was cemented in the American South, the common argument against abolition of slavery was, but we can't imagine a world without slavery. And if we had let that idea take hold in us, then we would have never abolished one of the worst institutions in human history. So it's time for us to think bold and think imaginatively and allow ourselves to think beyond these institutions because the people that have stakes in these institutions don't want us to think beyond them. And it's our duty to think beyond them.
2: And this brings to mind contemporary examples and ways we can deconstruct our own implicit biases because so much of this, at least in America, relies on images of black and brown people as criminals and I, I think about, especially last year at the the height of the Black Lives Matter protests nationally, there was the 8 Can't Wait campaign. One of the asks being that police are equipped with more body cams, which would seem to mean that more justice would be served because crimes were being recorded. But as we've talked about uh, throughout this podcast, that is just the continuation of the surveillance state almost and it provides more funding to the police and in cases look at last year the end of 2020 the murder of jade koth in florida she had overdosed and her boyfriend called the cops uh, and they all had body camps on and they didn't administer her um NACs alone and her father was asking for justice this was all on camera there are so many instances as we can see with the George Floyd murder as well. Um, so many of these instances are caught on camera and it's it's not enough. It's not enough to ask for body cams because this does also mean that the police is getting more money. But ways we can actively challenge the systems that we described in this podcast is um, challenging our implicit biases, um, rethinking the conclusions that we might draw, like body cams being the solution and smaller, smaller action items in your everyday life that are abolitionists that you might not think are like questioning stuff that you see on TV that would defend giving more money to the police.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think everything that Claire said really hits the mark. And I also think that looking at technology is another big thing. You know, the way that we utilize technology For example, I always open things and always check that I've read the terms and conditions without really thinking. And I guess having a better idea of how the technology we're using, how the corporations that we're unknowingly buying from without looking into what labor they're using or what they're exploiting, and just becoming a better and more knowledgeable consumer and changing those patterns is going to be a big part of moving towards abolition on a smaller level and just being more conscious of what we individually can do and being conscious of what we as a group can do, as Claire was talking about.
0: And abolition really requires a completely new way of thinking. It's an unpoliced way of thinking. And you really have to allow yourself to be humble in your thinking and realize that it's okay to not have the answers. It's okay to not know what to replace this with yet. It's okay to be a student of abolition and continuously open to learning and it can be summed up with the line like i don't know what the true measure of justice is i don't know what's the just way to replace these systems but i know for a fact it is not more cops just knowing that these systems are fundamentally wrong is enough to replace them as we said earlier the united states didn't really have a social plan for after slavery the imperative for abolitionists was just to abolish it so It's on us to allow ourselves to think about what is true justice? How can we get there? How can we move away from these systems and towards new systems that are just in their ideology? It is a difficult life, the life of an abolitionist, because it is often like standing against a tidal wave. And Charles Mills indeed says even if a lot of individuals start to oppose themselves to these institutions, they've become so powerful that they're not really going to change much in this current time. But if we reach a critical mass of enough people, you know, having enough disrupting with the means of protest and making it difficult for the state and its stakeholders to continue with these systems, we can eventually move on to new, just systems. Because the systems we have now don't actually even give justice. They don't even promise to give justice. They respond after harm has been done. And for example, in the George Floyd case, true justice could never have been given. Nothing was going to bring George Floyd back. Nothing was going to undo the damage done. We're all fooled into the illusion that by giving Derek Chauvin a guilty sentence, we've given justice to George Floyd. We haven't. I would hesitate to even call it accountability because the system is not going to change. It's going to go on. This will happen over and over again unless we root out the cause, which is the system itself. We need to think about how we can actually go about repairing damage between people. We often think that it's inevitable that we have to imprison people who harm others but in our own interpersonal lives oftentimes we cause harm to each other our families our loved ones our friends but we don't throw them into the prison we work on trying to repair the harm that's done this is just a starting point for thinking about abolition Again, I certainly don't have all the answers, and I think Samaya, Claire, and Maha would agree that uh, we're very much students of abolition. But it has to be possible that there's a better way. There must be a better way, and we must move towards that even if we don't know exactly where that will lead us. This is really not allowing yourself to think in the confines of the system, of the prison, of the mass deportation complex. This is really thinking freely. This is thinking unpoliced. This has been unpoliced. The research and notes were compiled by Samaya Peck, Maha Ayub, Claire Epstein, and me, Jibran Abdullah. This was a final project for the course, Making of the Modern World, The History of Policing, taught by Dr. Ann Berg at the University of Pennsylvania, and we were TA'd by Eleanor Webb. Original intro and outro production and mixing were done by me, Jibran Abdullah. Original artwork was made by Maha Ayub. The source materials were read by all of us, and it's a lot, but it was incredibly insightful to read through, and we couldn't recommend them enough. We'll leave a list of sources and recommended readings in the description. Thank you to everyone involved with this project. The only way this could have all been done is together, as a team, teammate in the course, and it was an honor to work with everyone. And remember, unpolice ourselves, unpolice the world.